Blog Talk Radio. Ted Cruz is not in the race. 
I wanted to see if we can shift our focus to some things that are sometimes in the law, sometimes in courtrooms, sometimes in the culture that are positive developments. So we will look at some of those. And then at the end, I've got a couple stories which are just sort of practical, improve your life sort of things, you know, on a on a personal level. So that's my agenda. If you want to see all of the program notes, all of these stories that I'm glancing at right now, you can go to don'tletitgo.com. Don'tletitgo.com is where I have all of these program notes. And if you want to call in and talk about your strategy, your thoughts about how we're going to get through the election, you know, what your strategy for voting is going to be, and also for surviving the four years after the election, you can do that. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And if you do want to, uh, you know, talk live and and give me a question or a comment, you press a little one, the one on the uh, phone menu when you get there. So over here in the chat room, I see just Jean and I saw Rob, although I don't don't think he said anything yet. John Roberts, our uh, chief justice, so to speak. No, it's not the, not the same one. Arjun, selfishness, welcome everyone. We have some people kind of lingering over on the side too, but yeah, feel free to chime in the conversation here in the chat as well, so so let's start a bit because what I've been talking about in the past couple of weeks is that I'm considering voting for Gary Johnson, and I also kind of put it out there on social media today as well. And my thought is this: Let me go ahead and see if I can find you. Actually, I'm wondering. Yeah, I think I just got rid of something that I wanted to have bookmark here, but let me just go ahead and give you my thoughts on this voting strategy. Um, A lot of people have been commenting on the thread over here. So let me go and grab it. Got to scroll up. So here's the idea. The Republican Party has essentially, now not all of them, but the ones obviously who are in the majority of the voters for Republicans, they have insisted on committing political and perhaps literal suicide by going for Trump. Uh, Also, the Democratic nominee is, in my words, too revulsifying to vote for. So I'm considering voting for a third-party candidate. And Gary Johnson, although I haven't been super wowed by him in the past when he was running as a Republican, nonetheless, he seems like a decent guy. First of all, he seems very decent. Uh, He seems like he has good positions, not great positions, but good positions on the majority of the issues. And This is important. He actually has a true impressive track record both in business and in government, not to mention as a mountain climber. Apparently he has climbed the seven tallest peaks in the world or something. So this guy is accomplished in a variety of arenas. Uh, I particularly, and I'll talk about in a second, love his position on privacy and encryption, which is better than Cruz. Uh, And, of course, privacy is a pet issue of mine, so I thought that was pretty cool. He has tried to run as a Republican, but ended up being shunned and is now in the Libertarian uh, Party and potentially will be the nominee. We don't know that for sure yet, but it it looks pretty good. His publicity is really good, so we'll see. Um, So I'm considering voting for him, and this is not anything that objectivists have done before, voting for a Libertarian Party candidate, but I'm considering doing that this year, and I've asked people for their thoughts on it. Of course, I would prefer 
if he was, say, the capitalist party candidate. But his positions are not consistent completely with the capitalist party uh, platform. And in particular, the one glaring position is the application of current anti-discrimination laws to bakers and other service providers, right? And this is where he got in trouble in the debate. Uh, Rob, Rob Abiero, who's sitting here in the chat room, he quite wisely pointed out, you know, didn't he say Jewish bakers should be required to bake Nazi cakes? And he said, yes, that would be the implication of his position. Not that he really wants to require Jewish bakers to bake Nazi cakes, not that he thinks it would really happen, but consistent, you know, consistency with his position, which is to enforce current anti-discrimination laws, particularly with respect to religious discrimination, then, you know, consistency would apply that, yes, you know, you're going to force these Jewish bakers to do it. Uh, so, no, I certainly don't agree with him on all the positions. His positions are not fully consistent with the capitalist party. So technically he couldn't be a capitalist party candidate. Uh, in in the past, I've not voted for libertarians. I've not registered as a libertarian. Or Actually, I might have registered as a libertarian once when I was very young before I, I knew that I did not want to associate myself with the Libertarian Party, per se. And we can talk a little bit about why that is. Greg Salmeri wrote a really nice essay about why I wouldn't want to classify myself as a libertarian. I wouldn't say necessarily that I am a libertarian. I, I'm an objectivist, and I like Rand's term radical for capitalism. Uh, insofar as libertarianism lumps you in with anarchists, right, uh, that term is taken as, you know, putting together those of us who want a government that upholds individual rights and that's it. It, it lumps us together with those people who want no government at all because they think that all government is bad. And I certainly don't want to be lumped in with those people. I would not want to endorse the Libertarian Party per se, but I might nonetheless vote for a Gary Johnson, who happens to be a Libertarian Party candidate, he himself is definitely not an anarchist, right? Uh, and I, I never take it that, you know, the fact that I vote for a conservative or vote for a liberal uh, or vote for a libertarian means that I actually endorse and consider myself to be a libertarian, so to speak. So um, so I, I do think there's a difference. I'm considering voting for him. I'm getting, you know, some positive reaction to that. Although, yes, people definitely have their disagreements with Johnson and I do as well. So that is uh, the big question. You can call me, like I said, and talk about your view on it, 760-888-5817. But what I want to do is get into Johnson's views on the issues themselves. And he starts out very strong. He talks about the horrible problem of government spending. And one thing you know for sure is that if you had a Gary Johnson in office, the issue of spending would be treated a million times better than it would be either under a Trump or under a Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, for Trump, this week there was a big thing because he was saying, oh, you know, if you start a trade war, that's no big deal. I've heard him talk about, the, you know, that the government, our government can never default because it's just going to keep printing more money. Uh, that he knows debt so well that debt is a good thing, et cetera. So he will keep spending. We're going to have 
you know, Gary Johnson writes at his website in the, under the issues tab, $20 trillion in national debt by the time Barack Obama leaves office. This is a serious issue. Neither Trump nor Clinton are going to address this issue at all. And what Johnson has proposed consistently whenever he's been a candidate is that he will have a real balanced budget. And as I recall, what he used to talk about is just cutting a flat percentage out of the budget for everything, that that would be the presumptive starting point. And, you know, he's got, he's got a track record for this. Um, when he was a governor and he had a Democratic legislature, uh, his website tells us that he stood up to excess spending, vetoing 50 bills and literally, excuse me, 50, 750, 750 bills and literally thousands of budget line items. And he balanced his state's budget. So he has a track record of doing this. And he says that the first major act as president would be to submit to Congress a truly balanced budget. And he says no gimmicks, no imaginary cuts in the distant future. Because you know how they do these things, right? They say, oh, well, we're promising to balance the budget in 10 years, you know, way when we're out of office to be held accountable or, you know, it's going to be overridden by future legislation, whatever. No, he's talking about cuts now. He says real reductions to bring spending into line with revenues without tax increases. He says no line in the budget will be immune from scrutiny and reduction. And he says he'll veto any legislation that will result in deficit spending, which will force Congress to override his veto if it wants to spend money that we don't have. So that is good. Now, in the past, I know Yaron Brook has talked about the fact that he doesn't think that balancing the budget per se is the biggest issue. It's more about cutting spending, cutting the size of government, and looking at what government does. Uh, but I would say that given our you know, the amount of debt going up to $20 trillion, that this is a huge, huge problem that needs to be addressed. And as I said, Johnson, head and shoulders above either of our other options. Um, Stuart in the chat room is pointing out, he says, I'm very happy to say that none of the three leading libertarian candidates are Rothbardian anarchists. That, that is very good to know. And, and it may be that the libertarian party is evolving such that those anarchists are really sort of a fringe and that no one's really taking them super seriously. Uh, that's good. But then again, you could say, okay, well, now here's Johnson. Johnson is doing some things that aren't consistent with the principle of individual rights. So it might just be a motion towards the center in general and not necessarily a principled move away from anarchy, right? Um, it just might be a move toward more government in general, without really understanding the principles. So I'd, I'd be interested to know your your view on that, Stuart. Um, Freedom Bree says, the one thing I don't like about the libertarian stand is that they usually say, quote, you have your truth and I have mine. It's all just a matter of opinion. And, and that is true that libertarians sometimes don't have, you know, a grasp of the firm philosophical foundation at the base of their views. Uh, you know, many of them will say it's wrong for government to initiate force against citizens, but they don't know why that is. And that can be a problem. I mean, particularly if Gary Johnson is going to be a serious contender in this election, and suppose, I mean, maybe we're going to have the debate 
Are we going to have a debate with all three of the candidates, or is Gary Johnson just going to have to take pot shots from the side? I mean, whichever, he is going to have to defend his views. He's going to have to argue against Trump and Clinton's views. And if he can't do it in an effective, principled way, and I I do have my doubts about that, then it's going to be hard for him to make a serious dent or, or to win. But there's a lot of people willing to do a protest vote with Johnson, and there's plenty of people who are willing to read his positions over at his website and you know, look at those, look at his track record. And even if he's not the best at arguing for his views, maybe you'd say, okay, that can be made up for. Um, Kay McInnes in the chat room asked the question, if a person can't stand on freedom of association, how can he stand on the concept of rational self-interest. Yeah, he is definitely not consistent. There is no doubt about it. Um, But uh, Arjun says, if that's reason enough not to vote for someone, virtually no one could be voted for, perhaps. And that's really what I'm looking at here. He, if you take the totality of his stands on the issues, he's better than Cruz. So why wouldn't I have been for him in the beginning? Uh, Because it would be nice if we could make this move towards freedom within the Republican Party, which is a party that typically traditionally has more chance of actually winning the election. I would prefer to do that. But since Cruz is out and since the other two are so bad, that is why I'm considering voting for this guy. But nonetheless, his position on the issues are quite good. They are really quite good. Uh, So taxes. He is talking about basically at least radically changing the IRS. Remember that Ted Cruz said he wanted to eliminate the IRS. He says what he wants to do is eliminate, right, replace all income and payroll taxes. And and you want to replace all of those with a single consumption tax. And that allows every American and every business to determine their tax burden by making their own spending decisions. So you are going to be taxed based on what you spend, not based on how much you earn or payroll taxes, you know, uh, through businesses. He says taxes on purchases for basic necessities would be prebated with all other purchases taxed equally regardless of income status or purpose. So he's got some sort of tier, whatever the basic necessities, I guess, food, clothing, shelter, and then everything else taxed equally. And you just choose. So when you spend, you're going to pay a certain percentage of your spending budget in taxes. And that encourages productivity. Of course, it discourages consumption. It encourages savings, which would probably help the economy, but certainly simplifying taxes in this way would. The danger of going with something like this is that if Johnson was then out of office, that you would have the consumption tax there, and then the next politician would reintroduce the income and the payroll taxes, even though Johnson had eliminated. So that's the kind of danger that you end up with. But what I would like to see is some sort of a constitutional amendment, and then we could get some real uh, motion on these issues here. Um, Justine says, that sounds like the fair tax. Maybe that's what it is. Pig Van says, I'm just going to write somebody in. Uh, Justine says, I'm willing to consider a protest vote for Johnson. Yeah. Um, Pig Van says, I'm not a fan of how they're into legalizing everything. Uh, Yeah, I mean, 
I'm not in I'm not against legalizing marijuana, for example. Having people sit in jail for marijuana does seem like a tremendous use of I mean misuse, waste of time, energy and resources for me. Um, okay, so what he wants to do is he says the IRS as we know it would be no longer necessary under this new tax. And he says Americans would no longer need to live in fear of the force of government being wielded under the guise of tax collection. And there's a couple things there that are very important. One is the viewpoint discrimination that we've seen wielded by the IRS. Uh, you know, so for example, the tax exempt organizations. 501c3s and all that kind of stuff. The ones that were Tea Party-ish were subject to audit. Their petitions for tax-exempt status were delayed or refused more often than any sort of other type of organization, audited at a higher rate, et cetera. So that's one sort of harassment. And um, then the other thing is that Barack Obama has been using the argument recently. He did this at South by Southwest in Austin. He said... Well, because we need to make sure that there's no tax evasion going on, we have to make sure that people cannot have encrypted phones. Because, And I think he has to have in mind Bitcoin here, right? Because your phone can actually store Bitcoin. It's not held in a bank or anything else. It's actually the little Bitcoin code that you have in your phone or wherever else you have it. You're storing it there. And if your phone is encrypted, government actually doesn't know how much money you have or where you got it or things like that. It's all in these apps in, in your phone. So Barack Obama doesn't want you to be able to actually keep money that you earn through voluntary trade. He wants to be able to get the so-called government share of it. And so therefore your privacy is, you know, not allowed. You can't have privacy in a, in a realm of slavery. And we've talked about that on, on the show before. Uh, term limits. Now here's one thing, right? Johnson, he says, is a strong advocate of term limits. He says, run for office, spend a few years doing the job at hand, and then return to private life. That's what Gary Johnson did as governor, and that's what senators and representatives should do. I'm not necessarily myself in favor of term limits. I know that it seems very attractive now because we have these crony-type politicians who have been in for decades and they never want to give up their power they're entrenched. They like the gravy train, and it's just a disaster. So you think that this could be one way to get rid of this problem. Maybe ideally, too, people would just go in and go out. But suppose there is somebody who's very good, and government does not have all the power that it does today. I don't see a problem with letting people stay in longer. Uh, it's not a big issue to me, but... I myself, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, yeah, term limits are, are a priority. It is, I think, a very well-intentioned attempt to get rid of the entrenched cronius in Washington. Now, what are we saying here in the chat? Oh, people are debating in the chat room about the issue of legalizing prostitution and harder drugs and things like that, whether that would be a good idea. Um Obviously, legal, make these legal, but I wouldn't pretend that they're moral by any means. Um, so we could go ahead and uh, and have that debate. But yeah, that, you know, I don't know that that's Johnson's biggest issue either. Like if, if Johnson was going around 
saying, yeah, well, all this other stuff, I don't have any serious views about it. I don't have any serious views about taxes. I don't have any serious views about government spending or foreign policy or privacy or Internet freedom or, you know, any of these other things. But really all I'm about is, you know, legalizing marijuana and other drugs and prostitution. Hey, I'm so cool. That's what I'm about. Then I don't think I would vote for him. But I don't see him as that person. As I said, he's got a serious track record as governor where I don't think he's made that some sort of a – you know, kind of banner issue for him. So we could keep talking about that. I've got a phone call I'm going to go ahead and pick up here. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Uh, hi, it's Harold. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Um, yeah, we're bummed that our guy is out. This is not fun. Yeah, I've I, I've been listening all the last couple of weeks. I just, uh, on the recording, not live. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, um, the strategy to deny, you know, the either candidate 270 electoral votes is a difficult one because let's say just arbitrarily Cruz was somehow to run as an independent and he could pick up Texas and some other Republican states. That doesn't help at all. Okay, you have to pick up a Democrat state here or there to deny the 270, and you have to pick up some Republican states. So that strategy is, you know, Gary Johnson could pick up New Mexico, maybe he could pick up Colorado, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough. It has to be bigger than that. Well, maybe he could pick up. Maybe he could pick up more between now. I mean, we've got several months, and we have several months for people to see who Hillary and Donald really are, right? Well, Donald, yeah, Donald's magic show. If you enjoy that, so I mean, Donald, you know, he all he did was cash in on on the twenty years of TV uh, TV exposure that he had. That's it. That's the total of what he did. And Hillary, she's like at the post office. She's waiting in line. It's her turn. Her numbers come up, and it's like, okay, next. You know, Hillary, okay, you're it, you know? Right. I mean, that's it. That's the, she brings nothing. And, you know, Wikipedia did – I looked up the Billy Dale. Billy Dale was the White House travel office with Hillary trying to stack the office with her personnel. And one of the employees, Billy Dale, on a weekend was a good Samaritan. He paid – some of the travel expenses by signing his own checks and then getting reimbursed on Monday. She tried to put him in prison over that. It was all it all came out in the end that he was totally innocent, but she she has a killer instinct on stuff like that. I I do not like her. I think she's dangerous. But I don't know what Trump's up to either. I mean, I don't think he's that dangerous. Well, what 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 about the other thing? I mean, whether you can actually get those electoral college uh, members, you know, the deny the 270, right? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, then it goes you, to the House and the Senate. Well, right. And I mean, that's one thing that you could try to do, and that would be good. But what about my position that even if you're not really able to do that much within the Electoral College, you can do some things mm-hmm. with respect to the popular vote that yeah. would take away from the impression that either winner, whichever winner it's going to be, has any sort of mandate at all? Yeah, that's that's personally what I'm going to be doing. I will be doing Libertarian just to crank up their numbers. I mean, there there were one and a half million last time. That was the most they've ever got. And maybe they'll be at five, five million this time or ten. And that's a big chunk. And also that assures them that they'll be on the ballot again next time around in all 50 states. And ballot access will get easier for them. And they won't have to waste their money on ballot access, sort of the way Peter Schiff had to waste most of his five million dollars on the ballot access laws. Yeah. So, 
it, it's a good thing to do it, but not because of any principles involved. Um, let me tell you something. This, this whole let's get New Mexico deal, I, that was an idea I had from 2012. Let's take New Mexico and, and cause a draw and force it to the House. But what happened is the libertarians are as lazy as you can't imagine how lazy they are. They, they treat this whole thing like a hobby. They put no effort into it. All the cokeheads and the and the and the and the, the potheads show up at the conventions. I don't know if you've ever watched a convention on TV, no, at least no. the older ones. They're interested in one subject only, legalizing pot. That's it. That's their total subject. They don't put up yard signs. They don't make calls. They don't raise money. They don't do anything. They they are lazy. And and compare that to Cruz. I mean, what a difference. You know, even though he he doesn't have all the values and he's hyped up on religion. He still is a hard worker, and that's got right. to be worth something. Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, as I said, you know, I was supporting him. I thought, given obviously his campaign, how intelligent his track record, everything else, that he was somebody who had a real shot. And I think he did have a real shot. But we had no idea that Trump was going to go as far as he did this time. It, it's just inconceivable to me that he's, yeah. you know, going to be the nominee. I'm not into conspiracy theories, but. I have a, a feeling that Trump has literally gone there to deny us a real chance. He may have gone as a blocking action just to sort of like, you know, make sure that nobody touched Hillary. And he's just running there to sort of pretend he's going to win and then lose in the end. That That's just a feeling I've had the whole way through, that he's just fake and, and he's not, he's just doing it. But now that the point has come that he might actually win. He might be taking it seriously. Right, right. By the and way, I mean, he's, he's been having conversations with people about Supreme Court appointments and all those types of things, which maybe shows that he's taking it a bit more seriously. He's all talk, so who cares? You know? um, on, on the whole tax issue, this I have a lot of thoughts on that that go back a while, but a lot of our rights have actually been given up because of having the IRS. I'll give you a couple of examples. Take take the Fifth Amendment, okay, and take a tax return. What is a tax return? Is it voluntary or is it required? Which is it? It can only right. be if one or the other. If it's required, doesn't it violate the Fifth? Right, exactly. Yeah. If wow. It's, if, it's re- if it's required, then nothing in it can be used against you because it was required, and you cannot be... The Fifth Amendment says no person can be compelled to be a witness okay. against themselves. So, are you going to? So, so what they they try to have it both ways. They say no, your voluntary compliance is required, whatever that means. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They do actually say that, and so they say it's voluntary, and therefore they can hand it over to the Justice Department, foreign governments, whatever. So there you are, right there. You, you've lost rights. The fifth, right. Your Fifth Amendment right not to be a witness against yourself is gone. Right. Right. I would like to, and it also breaks some of the basic elements of the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9, where no capitation, capitation is, means a head tax, a per-person tax, right. no capitation except in time of war. Well, we're not in we're not in war at war right now. So the only taxes you can have is an excise. An excise right, right. Would be but, like, then, but then, and we're we're going to get too technical here. So I'm going to have to actually probably cut this topic off. Tax. We've we've got the we've got the Sixteenth Amendment, right? And so that blew up uh, probably a, a, num- a number well, of things. Well, I, I have to I have to make a point on the Sixteenth Amendment. 
The 16th Amendment, you know, when they amended the Constitution, remember Prohibition? They amended it, and mm -hmm. then they had to pass a law afterwards. So just because they had the Constitutional Amendment didn't mean they didn't need the, implement, the, the implementing regulations had to be passed after that fact. And they did it correctly with the Prohibition thing. When it came to the 16th Amendment, they never followed up with the implementing regulations. So literally there's a gap, there's a hole, and... They never did it right. They just sort of just bulldozed their way through and just snowed everyone. So yeah. it may not even be necessary to repeal the 16th Amendment because they never passed the implementing regulations. So you could just shut the whole thing down if the Congress wanted to. I would, I would love to see it. Um, I don't know that Johnson has any real prospects of, of winning, but we don't know. I mean, this, is, this has been kind of the wild card election so far, so we'll see what happens between now in November. Anything else before I let you go and continue on? No, it's enough for one week. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Harold, for okay. calling in. Yeah, I'm, I, I would I would have called in California. I was going to call on that Saturday after Cruz withdrew. I was going to actually yeah. do that for you the know, first time ever. Yeah, you know, Orange County was going to be big for Cruz. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yep. I would have loved to go see Dana Rohrbacher and all that. So anyway, yep. you take care and, uh, and okay, we'll talk you too. in the coming weeks. Take care. Um, Okay, so let's go back. So Gary Johnson on jobs. He says that during the 2012 campaign, Gary Johnson was lauded for having the best job creation, quote-unquote, record of all the former governors. His response was, and I like this response, he says, quote, as governor, I didn't create a single job, end quote. His point, of course, being that government doesn't create jobs except for itself. Entrepreneurs, growing companies, and a robust economy create jobs. So he has a very principled position on this. You know, the idea, he says, and for government regulation, he says government regulation should only exist to protect citizens from bad actors and the harm they might do to health, safety, and property. Now, that is much better than the position that other people have. But when you talk about harm they might do, Really, you know, again, regulation, regulation is the application of government force in advance of any proof that a particular person is going to do harm. It constricts, it restricts the actions of people who have not been proven to be rights violators. So in principle, this is a wrong view as well. He is not consistent with the principle of individual rights insofar as he says, we'll have regulation to prevent the harm that people might do, Right. Um, he says, regulation should not be used to manipulate behavior, manage private lives and businesses, and to place unnecessary burdens on those who make our economy work. It's going to be hard for him to be principled about that, but you could expect under a Johnson presidency for regulations to be curbed to a large, large extent. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, Rob, here in the chat room, is talking about the Libertarian Party in Oklahoma, and he says that it seems that, you know, every time the Libertarian Party comes up, the talk always seems to turn to the war on drugs. He says, but I do have to say that some of the Libertarians here in Oklahoma are very active and very hard working. So that's really good to hear, Rob. I'm glad to hear that. He says there's some very dedicated Libertarians in Oklahoma. Uh, people are also talking about how Pamela Geller has come out for Trump which to me, of course, is is pretty disappointing. Um, in the chat room, they're also talking about Johnson's choice 
of vice president, and an article discussing that is in my program notes, and we'll get to that in a moment or two. Now, personal freedom, we know that Johnson is good on the issue of personal freedom. He says, when you ask Americans today what the greatest threat to their individual liberties is, far too often the response is the government. He says, that is simply unacceptable in a nation that was literally founded on the notion of liberty. Actually, it was founded on the notion of rights, but, you know, let's quibble. He says, imagine the disgust of the, disgust of the founding fathers if they were to see the national government spying on citizens' private communications monitoring financial transactions, photographing license plates, and even demanding to know what a person is doing at a public library, all without warrants or due process of law. So those of you who have been longtime listeners of my show, you know that if I am reading this right now, I'm like salivating because he actually has a principled concern for privacy. He knows that it is wrong for government to spy to snoop on citizens without a warrant, without probable cause, without particularized suspicion. So he gets it right. He says, imagine the founding father's shock to learn that the government has dedicated, uh, excuse me, has decided it is appropriate to tell adults what they can put in their bodies and even put them in jail for using marijuana while allowing those same adults to consume alcohol and encouraging the medical profession to pump out addictive, deadly painkillers at will. And that is true. There are some prescription medications that are way more dangerous than marijuana. So, you know, he says basically we need to be free with all this. We don't, and we don't need, as he says, unconstitutional scrutiny by the NSA, the ATF, the DEA, or any other government agency. Foreign policy and national defense, he rightly criticizes the nation-building interventions that we have conducted, and he says it leaves the murderers of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other violent extremists uh, with, you know, they're able to find new homes, they've been able to establish the caliphate of their warped dreams, and they have secured the resources, he says, to become very real threats to our lives and liberty. As president... Gary Johnson, the site says, will move quickly and decisively to refocus U.S. efforts and resources to attack the real threats we face in a strategic, thoughtful way. We have to get serious about cutting off the millions of dollars that are flowing to the extremist coffer every day. Relationships with strategic allies must be repaired and reinforced. And he says simplistic options of, quote, more boots on the ground must be replaced with strategies that will isolate and ultimately neuter those who would, if able, destroy the liberties on which the nation is founded. So um, I do think, in general, he would be a little too you know, non-interventionist on foreign policy, but I don't think he would be too bad. And In fact, he'd probably be better than, for example, a Rand Paul, or for sure a Ron Paul. Immigration, there's a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily be happy with his immigration policy because it's a rather open immigration policy. He's not going to build a wall of any kind at all. What he wants to do is essentially let people come into work as long as everybody undergoes a background check, pays taxes, and provides proof of employment. So we don't want people coming here just to live off the the dole, so to speak. And we want everybody to undergo a background check. Sometimes background checks are not that effective. I assume that he's got some thoughtful way to deal with that. But, you know, this is what I want. I want the background checks. 
I want the fact that people aren't going to come here and be on welfare, and I also want them to not be carrying some sort of horrible, contagious disease that's going to make them a risk physically to people. Um, so there's that there. Criminal justice reform. This is where he's talking about the whole issue of drugs. Yes, you're going to legalize marijuana, um, and maybe you're going to get rid of some of the mandatory minimum sentences and things like that. I don't know that he's going to be too permissive on criminal justice issues, but I would not at all mind seeing marijuana legalized, maybe some other things as as well. Um, Internet freedom and security, I love it. He has said, Gary Johnson has said, quote, there is nothing wrong with the Internet that I want the government to fix, end quote. And then skipping further down in this, issue under the website. It says the government is even demanding that it be a gra- be granted special, quote, backdoors into encrypted private information held and moved by Internet providers. The excuse is security, a laughable concept from a government that has proven time after time to be incapable of protecting even the most basic data. That's awesome. It says, Gary Johnson has consistently opposed these attempts at government interference with the Internet and as president would return the government to the side of freedom and innovation, not regulation. So he's opposed to the back door, which is better than so many of the candidates out there, certainly going to be better than these two. Now, on the environment, he says, you know, it's, it's a precious gift that needs to be protected. Uh, the responsibility of government is to protect citizens from those who would do them harm whether it be a foreign aggressor, a criminal, or a bad actor who harms the environment upon which we all depend. But then he goes on to say that he says, you know, too many politicians are having the wrong debate. He says, is the climate changing? Probably so. Is man contributing to that change? Probably so. The important question, however, is whether the government's efforts to regulate tax and manipulate the marketplace in order to impact that change are cost-effective or effective at all. It says, given the realities of global energy and resource use, there is little evidence that the burden being placed on Americans is making a difference that justifies the cost. So see, I like this thought where it's you're saying, yeah, there is climate change, but climate change is not some sort of out of context absolute that it must be stopped or prevented no matter what the cost is to human life and comfort. He at least has this idea of saying, look, you know, all of these, these taxes and regulations and everything else that you are doing in the name of climate change aren't doing a damn thing. It, it does sound more pragmatic than you would prefer the way that it's put here, but it's definitely leaning away from that whole idea. Uh, education, I do like one thing that he has to say about this. He says that there is no role for the federal government in education. He would eliminate the federal department of education, return control to the state and local levels. Now, my view is that you shouldn't even have government at state and local levels in education. Total abolitionist with respect to education, just like C. Bradley Thompson. I love how he coined that term abolitionism with respect to government education. But yeah, um, he would get rid of the Department of Education. It says that Johnson opposes Common Core and any other attempts to impose national standards and requirements on local schools. 
believing the key to restoring education excellence in the U.S. lies in the innovation, freedom, and flexibility that federal interference inherently discourages. And so as governor, he saw firsthand that the costs of federal education programs and mandates far outweigh any benefits both educationally and financially. And see, he's got that experience as governor having to exist under the burden. Then talks about abortion and the right to life. In general, he says that the right of a woman to choose is not only the law of the land, but also that Johnson believes that this is a very personal and individual decision. He said uh, he feels that each woman must be allowed to make decisions about her own health and well-being. Now that being said, it says that as governor, Johnson did support a ban on late-term abortions. So he's not 100% consistent on this, right? He's not 100% consistent on that. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, for, from my standpoint today, there are so many excellent early-term tests that you can do on embryos, on a fetus, whatever, to see if you want to have an abortion it would be, you know, relatively few situations in which I would even say it would be a good moral choice to have a late-term abortion. There are times when it would be appropriate. I don't think I would support a full ban on late-term abortions, but depending on how late it is, you're already at the stage of viability and things like that. At least we could have a rational debate about that if you were going to do it in a principled way. But he's saying no, you know, he does not want to do anything along those lines. You could never see a president, Gary Johnson, actually trying to ban abortion or, or work towards that. Uh, you know, He did support the ban on late term, but I, I don't know that he would do very much about it, uh, particularly as a libertarian candidate. Uh, now, some people here in the chat room are discussing the issue of, of Geller. Um, yeah, Geller actually being in favor of Trump. But yeah, so that's Gary, that's Gary Johnson on the issues. There's a lot of good stuff there. And again, yes, he's running as the Libertarian Party candidate, but to me, it may still be something pretty attractive. The choice of vice presidential candidate, that is the subject of a Cato commentary that Rob Abiera sent to me. Thanks, Rob, for sending this says, lots of Republicans are looking for a sane alternative to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and it looks like the Libertarian, has, Libertarian Party has just given it to them now that former Massachusetts Governor William Weld has joined former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson's ticket. So you've got two governors. They say it's the first time that two governors have shared a presidential ticket since the Republicans Thomas E. Dewey of New York and Earl Warren of California narrowly lost to the incumbent president, Harry Truman, in 48. Many observers think that experience as governor is the best preparation for the job of president. Johnson and Weld would bring together 14 years of gubernatorial experience to the White House, while neither Trump nor Clinton has ever served as governor or even mayor. They were both elected and reelected in Democratic states and dealt with heavily Democratic legislatures. Neither Johnson nor, nor Weld is a purist libertarian, and both have come under fire within the Libertarian Party, uh, which is going to nominate the candidates in Orlando over Memorial Day weekend. So we're going to be waiting for this. Uh, they say Johnson displeased many libertarians, including me, by saying that government should ban discrimination on the basis of religion, right? That's the whole wedding cake issue. 
including requiring a Christian baker to bake and decorate a cake for a same-sex wedding. Uh, Weld has apparently supported some gun control measures, so he's not consistent either. But they're going to present a clear alternative to Trump and Clinton. Uh, They say strong and coherent fiscal conservatism, social liberalism, uh, drug policy reform, criminal justice reform, reigning in mass surveillance, ending executive abuse of power, prudent foreign policy, etc. So I'm liking all of this. It's looking promising that you've got two governors. It's going to be interesting just to see how this unfolds. Um, I do have, if you go over to don'tletitgo.com, and this is thanks to Jean. Thanks, Jean, for sending this on. The YouTube video of the libertarian debate that Stossel conducted a while ago. And about 28 and a half minutes into this, you actually have the discussion about being forced to bake cakes. And what Johnson is saying is that he wants to continue the anti-discrimination laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of religion in particular because he thinks discrimination on the basis of religion is particularly odious. And yes, it is. I mean, morally speaking, it is. But, you know, I I think the examples that he cites are a little bit far-fetched. I don't see, for example, any utilities that are not going to sell electricity to Muslims, for example, which is the sort of thing he was talking about. So he's he's just he's just not 100% on this issue but with everything else I would say again very much considering doing this very much considering doing this uh, we have a new person hanging out here in the chat room um De Gringolade? I don't know I don't know if I pronounced that correctly anyway welcome uh now Oh, okay, they're talking about uh, Pamela Geller. Yeah, if Trump is the nominee, then all the Republicans are rhinos, yeah. So how is it that Pamela Geller is calling everybody rhinos and she's supporting Trump? It is. It's a very interesting position for her to take, and it is sad that she's doing it, particularly because I don't know that Trump is going to be consistent on any of the things that he's promising that she would be concerned with. So, for example, restrictions on Muslim immigration, which I think would be of particular concern to her. He's not going to keep promises about any of this stuff. So I can't see why exactly. She may think that someone like Johnson is not going to be very good on it, but if he's going to consistently do background checks on everybody who's going to come in, that is probably better than anything we have under Obama now, and it might be better than anything we would have under a Trump in terms of keeping the bad people out. Because he says, you know, and it is true, you know, as much as, there's a lot of, you know, people, not a lot, but there's a significant number of, of really bad people. There's still a very small minority of those people who want to come in the United States and work. So let's do our very best to screen them out in a principled way. And one of the things he talks about, by the way, in his issues page, and I didn't say it, um, he actually mentions, you know, radical Islam, which everybody does. But then he says Sharia ideology. He actually talks about Sharia in there as well as a threat which I think is really good to see a presidential candidate actually intelligently speak about Sharia. So I would recommend Geller actually consider potentially Johnson. Um, there's so many dangers from the other guys. I mean, what you know, what is it that, that we're up against, right? We've got Trump, 
who is saying, oh, well, we can just keep printing money no matter how much we're going to spend. We can have trade wars. He says he doesn't care about starting a trade war, um, that people just don't understand the world economy the way he does. We just, you know, we should just leave it to him. And what do trade wars do? Trade wars make goods more expensive for you and me. We go to Walmart or whatever. Everything is going to be way more expensive. And does he understand this at all? He he lacks a basic economics understanding. Then we've got Hillary, on the other hand. And the news I recall coming out this week is that she is going to leave her economy to Bill. So I guess he's going to handle all the economic stuff. You're supposed to be excited about that because things, I guess, weren't too bad under Bill Clinton. Why? Mostly probably because of Reagan's policies, but, you know, who's counting? And, you know, what is it? She's going to handle the spiritual realm. He's going to handle the material realm and somehow the solutions are going to work together. Because what is she, you know, what is she? She's an altruist. She's going to be for giving everybody everything. And then Bill is supposed to make it all work somehow magically by tweaking the economy so that she can spend as much as she wants to fulfill her altruistic aims or something. That's what we have with these two candidates. Um, They're still talking about rhinos here in the chat room. Arjun says, all Republicans since Goldwater are rhinos, at least the Republican nominees for president. Yeah, it's funny how the standards shift over the years. Goldwater would have been so much better. But yeah, the nominees, right? I think that Cruz would have been up there with a Goldwater, probably, probably. Rob says, ew, Clinton needs to keep her hands off my spirit. But that is the way I see it, right? When she said, oh, don't worry, Bill's going to handle the economy, that you should be happy because he's going to make the the economic engine crank along really well so that no matter what she's doing in the, quote, spiritual realm, the economy is going to be able to afford it. That's the way I see what she was talking about, that she's going to be able to achieve her altruistic aims and that Bill is going to make the magic happen because he's got the magic touch with respect to the economy. And little does she know, it was probably Reagan who was the cause of it all hanging together when when Bill Clinton was in as president. <laughs> Just Jean likes that too. Yeah, keep keep her hands off my spirit very much. Uh, Very much. Now, Rob also sent me this other story, and this is from Scientific American. It's called A Very Personal Problem, and you can read the whole thing at DontLetItGo.com, but the story is about essentially these personalized genetic tests that will tell you whether you are likely to have a dangerous drug reaction. And um, just imagine you're in the hospital and they're thinking of giving you various drugs for a condition you have, And they can give you a test to make sure that you're not going to have a dangerous drug reaction to these. But the problem is doctors are reluctant to use them. Why? Because of the FDA. And if you recall, the FDA has been putting a lot of pressure on genetic testing companies like 23andMe, um, saying essentially that it's a marketing issue and that they're promising things they can't deliver and all this stuff. Um, The way that the article presents it is that up until now, at least, the hospitals, if the hospitals are administering these tests, they are exempt from FDA scrutiny on these tests because the hospitals aren't marketing them. They're just using them, right? They're not just selling them to people. They're using them. 
Nonetheless, the FDA is clamoring to get power to regulate these genetic tests as they're just used by hospitals even. They want more power. It's not enough that they want to say, oh, well, we're just going to protect the innocent consumer from the evil marketing of 23andMe, right? They want to essentially have control over even the hospital's use of these tests. The other factor, of course, is whether insurance will reimburse for these tests, but they're saying that that insurance hurdle is about to be cleared as there's more evidence of the effectiveness of these tests, and then the insurance companies can't deny that they are effective and valuable. You know, it's it's in the insurance company's interest to make sure that you don't have a horrible drug reaction. If you can get a cheap genetic test and avoid, for instance, a sulfa allergy or whatever it is, then that would be a great thing. So even insurance companies would say, okay, that's good too. Even under Obamacare, probably, it, they'd let you use it. But now the FDA is trying to get in on the game. And that is sickening, of course. So check that out if you like. Um, so that's one thing that's at stake, you know, is this increasing power of the FDA. If you If you happen to get lucky and get a Gary Johnson, you're going to have the FDA doing less than it is now, no doubt, based on what he is saying. Uh, what else is in the mix here? And I click this with some gusto because it's a very sad story. From Yahoo News, Venezuela. You, you've been seeing all these horrible stories about Venezuela, the deplorable state of the hospitals, the lack of hygiene anywhere in hospitals, the lack of you know, all the cleaning materials, antibiotics, all the different things that you need in hospitals for, to make them run. They don't have it there in Venezuela. This headline is this. Listen to this. Venezuela, where a hamburger is officially $170. $170 for a hamburger. What in the world could they mean? Well, a hamburger sold for 1,700 Venezuelan bolivares. And that is $170 in the official exchange rate, which is supposed to be 10 bolivares for $1. Now they're saying, of course, no merchant is pricing at the official rate. And in fact, what they do is you get the black market rate of 1,000 bolivares. So what would that mean? I guess your burger is really um, $1.70 if you're going there. But imagine the official rate, the official rate would make it $170. That's how messed up everything is there. But let me give you just another snippet of what life is like for Venezuelans under socialism, lining up for necessities. And what is it that you do? Every day, apparently, what they do is they line up for daily deliveries, and I'm quoting from this Yahoo article, daily deliveries of one subsidized personal hygiene product or another, toothpaste, for instance, and grab their ration amount before it ran out, usually within a couple of minutes. And they say, we do this every week, and we don't know what we're trying to buy, said Kevin, a 21-year-old auto parts salesman waiting with his family. He says, what's frustrating is when you get into a gigantic line, but they run out before you get any. And then what's the alternative? Black market, etc. But imagine that that is life under socialism. And imagine 
that one or the other or both of the candidates that are running right now in the in the you know the two party system could get us there, move us closer to there, scarily closer to there. That's one angle on it. You see where Venezuela is now. We don't want to get there. Um, what's interesting is how people used to hail Venezuela as some sort of paradise, right? They wanted it to succeed. They thought it was going to succeed. Salon in 2013 had an article with the headline, Hugo Chavez's Economic Miracle. Subhead is, the Venezuelan leader was often marginalized as radical, but his brand of socialism achieved real economic gains. Again, this is 2013. And let me read you this one chunk of it, which I think is is the most relevant. Um, Yeah, so why is it that, you know, Chavez was criticized. Um, It says, uh, Chavez was a bugaboo of American politics because his full-throated advocacy of socialism and redistributionism at once represented a fundamental critique of neoliberal economics and also delivered some indisputably positive results. This is Salon, 2013. It says, indeed, as shown by some of the most significant indicators Chavez racked up an economic record that a legacy-obsessed American president could only dream of achieving, end quote. That is about Venezuela, right? This is Salon saying that Chavez racked up an economic record that a legacy-obsessed American president could only dream of achieving. And what I recommended when I saw this on Facebook is I recommended that Salon is going to need its own so-called ministry of truth, an Orwellian ministry of truth, to go back and rewrite their articles from 2013 about what they predicted for Venezuela because, boy, this must be embarrassing to them. It's still up online. You can go to don'tletitgo.com. You can find this link for Hugo Chavez's Economic Miracle from 2013 and read it for yourself. And and you do. It's, it's a read it and weep kind of thing because this is not good. This is horrible that they're living their lives this way. But the idea that some place like Salon could be so deluded to think that socialism is going to, you know, it's actually going to work this time. We're going to we're going to prove the law of reality wrong, right? You're not going to. Stuart in the chat room says that that Salon essay's author David Sirota wrote a book titled Back to Our Future where he tries to blame Ayn Rand for the financial crisis. (laughs) Oh, it would be awesome to see him have a debate with either Jerome Brook or John Allison, for example. I would love to see him debate John Allison because John Allison wrote exactly the opposite book. He talked about how Ayn Rand would have been the solution, the prevention of the financial crisis. And in fact, it is government intervention that caused the financial crisis, right? So I would love, 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 love to see that. Freedom Breeze in the chat room says, Under communism 1992, I witnessed in person people in Siberia lining up for milk at the milk truck with their pails and other containers. Yeah, and the idea that you have a, you know, some sort of a ration that you may or may not even be able to get is so scary. 
1984 gives a chilling picture of what this is like as well. And, you know, the idea that you have some tiny little ration of, of chocolate or anything else, and you're supposed to be so excited at the prospect that you even get some of this stuff. And the only thing that was plentiful in 1984, if you guys read it and you recall, uh, was some sort of a gin, I think, a, a, you know, just, just a hard alcohol. And, of course, they would drink a lot of this stuff. Why? Because you can't deal with the the stinking, sickly poverty otherwise, unless you're drinking all the time. So they would have gin at lunch and everything else, go back to their work afterwards. So, yeah, this is, this is what's at stake. Now, what I'd like to do, what do we have? We have a good 26 minutes or so. Let's turn to some good news. Does that sound good? Yeah, Victory Gin, Roger is reminding me here in the chat room. Yeah. Victory Jin. Arjun says that Vice has some great videos on Venezuela. And I think when Arjun says there's some great videos on Venezuela, by great do you mean depressing? Probably you do mean depressing. So let's let's get to some some good news. Rob, again, thank you for sending this. The Oklahoma governor vetoed the anti-abortion bill. I remember reading and sharing the story about the legislature passing this anti-abortion bill in Oklahoma. I'm very glad to see that the governor has vetoed it. This was published just a day ago, uh, May 20th. Governor Mary Fallon vetoed a bill Friday that would have effectively banned abortion in Oklahoma. She said the measure was vague and would not withstand a constitutional legal challenge. That's a little bit wimpy. So it's not that she was personally against it, on any sort of a principle. It's just, oh, well, practically speaking, it wouldn't withstand a constitutional challenge. Oh, and it's it's vague. Vague can be a, a principled objection to something, but I wonder. Senate Bill 1552 would have made it a felony for physicians to perform abortions. That sounds pretty clear to me. It also contained a provision to revoke their medical licenses unless the abortion was necessary to save the life of the mother. So is that the thing that's vague? I could tell you there are so many laws on the books that are more vague than that. She says the bill is so ambiguous and so vague that doctors cannot be certain what medical circumstances would be considered necessary to preserve the life of the mother. End quote, Phelan said. There's plenty of situations in which legislation like that, that is passed and then you would have testimony to talk about whether it was or wasn't necessary to preserve the life of the mother. I guess it would, in a certain way, be um, you know chilling. It would have a chilling effect on them because if there was any argument that it wasn't necessary, I guess they wouldn't do it. So you could say that, but it would be better if she was more principled. But that's good. You know, it's good news that Oklahoma at least is not going to have that law on the books for any any period of time. Another piece of good news. Congress has moved to nullify judges' order on Guantanamo guards. This is from the New York Times yesterday. And what is the judges' order on Guantanamo guards? There is a judge who actually ordered that women cannot, as guards at Guantanamo, touch the Muslim inmates who object to having women touch them and handle them. I mean, we're talking, these are death row, really horrible Guantanamo inmates. And nonetheless, a judge says, oh, we don't want to offend you by having women actually touch your arm as you are being guided around for whatever, you know, legal proceedings and stuff that you're supposed to go to. So that was the order. Congress is moving 
to nullify it to its credit. And there's a particularly good quotation in this piece, and I believe it was from Kelly Iot, yeah. Um, This is what she says in in a statement, quote, 9-11 terrorists who planned and facilitated the murder of almost 3,000 people on American soil should not be able to dictate whether our female service members do their jobs because these terrorists have a problem with women, end quote. So, good for her. I do hope that they succeed in this. You know, part of the wild card with any of this stuff is whether they're going to succeed with the Senate. And that's also true with this next piece of good news. Thanks to Stephen Jacklin, from whom I hadn't gotten a story before, but he posted this on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page. The U.S. House has unanimously passed an email privacy bill. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that these things should be done through legislation. If you've listened to my show, you know that I would like this same effect that's achieved in this legislation to be achieved through constitutional litigation. I'll talk about that in a second, but look what this bill does. It says the U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously on Wednesday to require law enforcement authorities to get a search warrant before asking technology companies to hand over old emails. The bill's prospects in the Senate remain unclear, it says, though the 419 to 0 vote in the House is likely to put pressure on the upper chamber to approve it. Now then, whether Obama would veto it or not is another story. So the way that email used to work, and it was under um, what they call it, the ECPA, and I'm trying to remember what that, yeah, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, that was what the acronym stood for. Under that act, there was this two-tier system. So the newer emails that were on the server for a shorter period of time, you needed, the government would need to get a search warrant in order to access those. But the older emails, they could be accessed with just a subpoena. It was possible for the government to be accessing your emails without you ever being notified of it. And, you know, whereas the, st- the you know, the statute said that the time period during which they could access it without you being notified was a short period of time, that time could get renewed and renewed and renewed. It is very bad. And there's, you know, so many people who use these servers now to store your old email And the fact that it's stored on a server over a certain number of days doesn't mean it's any less private than the more recent stuff, right? The fact that you didn't delete it doesn't mean you don't think it's private. So this is a great development. The idea that you have to have a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion before the government can access your email, whether it's new or old, that is the way it should be, right? That is the way it should be. Um, I like to see this through legislation. I like to see it get done, you know, however it can get done. But whatever can be given to you via legislation can be taken away from you by legislation under, for example, a Trump presidency. Suppose Trump puts the screws on everyone and says, forget that. I want to get all those emails. I want the power, right? He could get rid of it. And why? Because of the constitutional third party doctrine. And you can listen to old shows where I've talked about this. Some people would say ad nauseum, but there is a doctrine in the constitutional law of privacy that says that once you share information with a third party, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy 
in that information, and therefore the government can access, access that information without a warrant. And what does that mean? That means then that the government's ability to access that information that you shared with the third party, it depends on legislation. It depends on the whim and the mercy of our legislators. Now, right now, our legislators, thanks in large part to Edward Snowden, our legislators are sympathetic to our desire to maintain our privacy, and so they're passing laws like this. I love to see this, but I would rather see a more permanent change in the form of, like I said, constitutional litigation where they get rid of that third-party doctrine. You know, the mere fact that you share something with a third party for some limited purpose, like storing your email, that doesn't mean that you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in it, that you are agreeing to share it with everybody for any purpose at all. It is there for a limited purpose for them to store it for you. They are, you know, in effect, uh, bailers or baileys, baileys. It's like a, it's a bailment arrangement. They can only do it, you know, access it for limited purposes. So anyway, this is a great development. It's very good news. I would like to see it succeed in the Senate and get signed into law by our president, and maybe it will. That's good, but I I would like to see a more permanent change in the law there as well. Another piece of good news, judge, and this is from Rob as well. Thanks, Rob. Judge in Obama's amnesty case orders every lawyer involved to take an ethics class. And what is this litigation that's going on? There are a number of state attorneys general, I guess, who are challenging Obama's executive action on immigration. And um, so the the judge who is overseeing the challenge by these 26 states to the executive action, that all of the lawyers who are, quote, employed at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., who appears or seek to appear in a court, state or federal, of any of the 26 plaintiff states, they must annually attend a legal ethics course, end quote. He's saying, this judge is saying, that Obama's executive actions on immigration are so patently indefensible that if you decide that you're going to appear before a court to defend this garbage, that you must annually attend a legal ethics course. I love that kind of ruling. It is fun to see judges wielding their power in a creative way in order to humiliate really bad attorneys. They have to take an ethics class every year because they dared to stand up for this. Uh, Flycatch says that the lawyer should have been debarred, perhaps, but it's still pretty humiliating to be cited by a judge and say that you have to do this. <sighs> Stuart in the chat room says that um, Yale's social justice ethics professor, now mind you, that's not a legal ethics professor, but okay, so Stuart says that Yale's social justice ethics professor, Thomas Pogue, was recently caught pressuring his students to have sex with him. Wow. He says, if you make people take ethics courses, who will teach ethics to the ethics instructors? Yeah, there's there's a lot of experts out there who would be more than willing to do it. I'm, I'm sure that Ron Rotunda would do it. I've taught the legal ethics course, so I could go teach these people. It would be wonderful, right? More good news. This is more on a on a cultural level from the New York Times. 
This is published yesterday as well. University of Miami establishes chair for the study of atheism. Now, typically, if you're going to have a chair at a university, it's going to have anything to do with religion. It's going to have to do with either study of religion, maybe a particular religion. But now it's a chair for the study of atheism. And the chair exists because of a $2.2 million donation from Louis... Apignani, I think I pronounced that correctly. He's a retired businessman and former president and chairman of the modeling school Barbizon. Many of you may have heard of that. He's given grants to many humanist and secular causes, but this is his largest so far. They're saying the university hasn't yet publicly announced the new chair. Well, New York Times did it for them, right? They're going to appoint a committee of faculty members to conduct a search for the scholar to fill the position. Um, And one of the things he says is that he wants to basically get rid of the idea that you cannot have morality without religion. And here's the quote actually from Dawkins. Actually, you know what? It's Dawkins who's doing this. It's not the guy who gave the donation himself. So he said he wants to eliminate the discrimination against atheists and he wants to make atheism legitimate. So it's Dawkins that they got the quote from to comment on this, who makes uh, you know what, what's a little bit more principled connection about it. Uh, this is Dawkins' quote. It's enormously important to shake off the shackles of religion from the study of morality, end quote. And that's right. Um, you know, I talk about Ayn Rand's ethics, and Ayn Rand's ethics have nothing to do with religion. She herself was an atheist, and it is... Uh, you know, a rigorous, awesome, life-supporting, happiness-supporting moral code. And it has nothing to do with religion, doesn't require faith at all. So this is excellent news on a cultural front. And again, I want to give you this excellent news. Why? Because, you know, what, what we've been talking about earlier, we've been talking about a strategy for being able to live with yourself while voting in the 2016 election and hoping that you're going to survive for the next four years. But I wanted to also give you news about positive cultural signs out there, things that we can carry into, say, 2020 and perhaps capitalize on. So there is there is some good news out there, and that's one of them. Another piece of good cultural news. Many of you could follow Mike Rowe. Do you follow Mike Rowe? He's got the show Somebody's Got to Do It. Well, he has recently laid into Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders has been pushing everyone to go to college, saying how college is such a great value for everyone. Now, it says Roe isn't against college. This is a, a mag- Reason Magazine article, and they're, and they're talking about an interview that they had had with him. They said uh, he isn't against college, but he takes exception to the idea that the only legit way to get ahead is to get a university sheepskin. Rather, they say, he argues, there are lots of excellent trade jobs available that many people would not only be successful at, but happy to do. And they say that Roe sees a systemic elitist attempt to denigrate such work in the name of, quote, college for all. And this is Roe's Facebook page. They have a quote from it. Bernie Sanders has tweeted, Quote, at the end of the day, providing a path to go to college is a hell of a lot cheaper than putting people on a path to jail. End quote. Talk about a false alternative, right? Your alternative is provide a path to go to college or you're going to put them on a path to jail. That's it. 
Now here's Roe. Roe says in reaction, he says, I wonder sometimes if the best way to question the increasingly dangerous idea that college education is the best path for most people is to stop fighting the sentiment directly and simply shine a light on the knuckleheads who continue to perpetuate this nonsense. He says, this latest tweet from Bernie Sanders is a prime example. In less than 140 characters, he's managed to imply that a path to prison is the most likely alternative to the path to college. Pardon my acronym, but WTF, he says. Uh, He says, the cautionary tale, predictable as it is false, he says, now people are starting to slowly understand the obscenity of $1.3 trillion in student loans along with the abundance of opportunity, etc. He says, I try not to be political, um, but he says, this is the first time I've seen an elected official support the hyperinflated cost of a diploma by justifying, juxt- juxtaposing it with the hyperinflated cost of incarceration. So bravo for Micro. I think it's a very positive sign in the culture that he is challenging Bernie Sanders, that he's taking the politics on his own page, which he tries to avoid doing in order to make that comment. Flycatch says that Sanders is a panderer just like his sidekick Hillary. I think that's what you mean, his sidekick. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely I agree. Now, I've got two more stories, and the other two stories that I've got for tonight are simply kind of lifestyle-enhancing stories. Uh, One of them, New York Times, the article really is about the fact that the FDA is going to require new labels on food. Um, There's a new template for nutrition labels, and one of the big changes is that there's an addition of a line for, quote, added sugar to be placed below a line for total sugar. So as it is right now, you pick up, for example, a jar of spaghetti sauce off the shelf. That's what they've got pictured here in the article. And on the back, it'll just tell you how much sugar is in there. And then, you know, you can decide whether you want that much sugar in your diet or not, but you don't know really the source of the sugar. And what this article is talking about is that you may not know it, but in addition to the naturally occurring sugars in food, there's a whole bunch of added sugars that the they put in there to make it taste better and it's not always easy to determine that that's in there by looking at the list of ingredients so for example one of the euphemisms for sugar is quote evaporated cane juice now i would know that that's sugar but then there's some other things on lists that you wouldn't necessarily know so you can't know that there's added sugar simply always from reading the list of ingredients and so the fda is saying okay we're going to require on a label that it say added sugar. Now, I don't think that you should have required labels of the FDA, but this, you know, it's it's good to know. Um, one thing that this New York Times article is useful for is it tells you all the synonyms for added sugar. And there are four rows of terms and each, excuse me, four columns of terms. And each column has like 20 or 30 terms in it. So there are so many terms that I wouldn't have known, for example, there's one called nulamoline. I have never heard of that, right? Uh, Mizuame, I don't even know what that is. Um, Isomaltulose, I might have known that that, because there's the lose at the end, so maybe there's something there. Honeybake, I don't know what that is. So there's a lot of uh, terms for added sugar that I wouldn't know, and so it would be good to be conversant in that. 
Then there's juice concentrates that really just mean added sugar as well. And they give you, again, four columns. Each column has, looks like about 20 terms or so. And whenever it's this juice, juice concentrate, it just means that they're adding sugar to your thing. So if you want to cut down, of course, as a, you know, a carb is a carb is a carb in, in a lot of ways. But if you want to know which brands are really socket it to you in terms of added sugar, it might be useful to take a look at that. And then another New York Times piece that is interesting just in terms of productivity although what the Times is trying to do is they're trying to make it into an issue of employment law. But here's the headline. It says, in Sweden, an experiment turns shorter work days into bigger gains. And the article is all about the fact that in certain sectors in the Swedish economy that they have tried an experiment involving six-hour workdays instead of eight-hour workdays. And they found that the productivity of the workers increased by so much that it was actually more profitable for companies to have these six-hour workdays instead of the eight-hour workdays. Very useful to know. But what's the implication? The New York Times, of course, would want to make this an issue of law. They would want to mandate six-hour workdays, and then they just say, oh, well, look, it's better for you anyway. But what I take it as, again, is if that's actually going to be more profitable, anybody who owns a company might think about this, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be per- more productive, you might consider working six solid hours. You know, they talk about the fact in here that if you're only going to work six hours, that you're going to be as efficient as possible. You're not going to spend your time in pointless meetings and do all these other time-wasting things, um, and that that has actually been the case. So in terms of productivity, something to <laughs> Arjun in the chat room says, six hours, are they kindergarten kids? I mean, you'd be surprised if you have very taxing work that six hours might indeed be enough. I remember talking with you know, Leonard Peikoff about his writing days, and six hours was an ideal for him. Um, if you could put six awesome hours in, then you are being really productive, and that after that, productivity tapers off to a, to a large extent. So play with it if you have the ability to do that. But as I said, you know, again, New York Times, their agenda is that they want to legislate it. I look at these things sometimes as just, you know, useful information to enhance your life. So take it that way. Um, As I said, as we're going to be, you know, kind of going forward here, obviously we're going to keep trying to, you know, dig up critiques of the candidates and stuff as it's appropriate. We'll still be talking about strategy, but one of the things we also, I think, want to keep focusing on is how to survive and make the most of the four years. It's no, no doubt it's going to be four years to endure. And how, how can we shift it from, well, we're just going to endure it to we're actually going to thrive as we continue to try to change the culture. And some of that is consciously focusing on some of the good news, like I tried to do here in the in the last part of the show today, uh, focusing on you know things like improving your diet or improving your work life and and stuff like that that can uh, enhance your enjoyment of life to the extent you can during this period as well. Um, but like I said, we'll we'll continue to discuss voting strategies. We can talk also about voting strategies for local candidates, you know, candidates for the House and the Senate and stuff like that. 
and see what we can do to make the most of our time as we continue to try to change the culture. And as I said, this show, don't let it go. It, what is it? It is the American sense of life, right? So we will continue to do that. Uh, here in the chat room, got Flycatch, Arjun, Michael. <laughs> Michael says, in other words, in four years, will we be heading into the roaring 20s or the whining 20s? Are we going to head into the roaring 20s in any, I guess, I guess we're going to have to know, right, one way or the other. I think that if we, you know, position ourselves correctly, we could indeed be heading into the roaring 20s. But I'm hoping we're, we would head into the roaring 20s without the threat of the crash at the end of the 20s, right? Arjun says Ted Cruz 2020. That would be really nice to see. Or who knows? If we really play our cards right, maybe we could have a capitalist party candidate who's going to be fielded then. I think that's a little bit optimistic, of course, but maybe we could get Ted Cruz 2020 and then we could position ourselves to get a capitalist party candidate soon after. Um, anyway, thank you, everyone. Thanks to Rob. Thanks to just Jean. Oh, Arjun says, your own Brooke 2020. That's going to require a constitutional amendment for that, but if we could get that, that would be great. Um, yeah, thanks to everybody who has sent have uh, sent stories through the Don't Let It Go on her page and, and elsewhere. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to comment on this show, talk about any of the stories, watch the video of the libertarian debate, etc. And I will talk to you next week. I plan on doing the show in the usual Friday Slot. The, the Friday slot is 3 p.m. Pacific, I mean, excuse me, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific on Friday. And I'll do that next week, okay? So everyone take care, and I'll talk to you then. Thanks for joining me. Bye.